Welcome to part two of this extended conversation with Dirk Moses concerning his new monograph, The Problems of Genocide, at the Review of Democracy. This combination of reconstructing the intellectual history behind the coining of this concept and then also problematizing the concept in really quite a radical way, really showing what it excludes and what it mm-hmm. in a way purposefully allows for, if you wish, because that's, I think, where your arguments are going. I think this is really fascinating and certainly material for a lot of subsequent discussions and debates. I'm I'm sure uh, these points will be discussed for for several uh, years uh, to come. But next, I wanted to talk us also a bit about what you suggest as an alternative, right? Because you not only critique the concept and its implications, but also, in fact, present an alternative explanation and, and suggest a new overarching concept, right? How, if you wish, the field of uh, comparative genocide studies might be replaced by something else in the, in the future, right? It, it, the book does have such, a, such an ambition and such an agenda. So you argue in the book that the social fact of racial or religious difference or even prejudice does not in itself cause mass violence. It is really the securitization of groups, whether they are racialized or defined in some other way, that drives yeah. excessive forms of violence, right? That's, that's what you, you, you argue uh, in the book. Uh, in a way, you, you, you underline this in several uh, places in the book. So would you be willing to discuss how concepts of state security and also military necessity function and why you think that they yeah. actually lie at the heart of major acts of state transgression and what yeah. can the key analytical term you suggest right that of permanent security help us grasp better than competing yeah. conceptions and perhaps on a more methodological level let, let me add also a third a question to that you know may i ask how you draw on the accounts of perpetrators of mass violence in the book and and why you chose to engage with their testimonies uh, in such a way sure sure so one of the one of the virtues of doing a lot of comparative work, you know, as I've worked on genocide in Australia or the question of genocide in Australia, you know, I edit this journal on genocide research. So you end up at least with an amateurish, you know, uh, um, introduction. Um, I was thinking of another word, but um, you know, appreciation of many cases. Okay familiarity an amateur familiarity with with other cases whether it's you know genocide in colonial context in north america or the uyghurs now in xinjiang or the rohingya in in myanmar uh, many 20th century cases you know whether um, the the stalinist uh, crimes against uh, its own civilians and especially in the you know the case of the ukrainians and above all the holocaust of course you see patterns okay and the the pattern is not necessarily you know the uh, recrudescence of racial hatred which then manifests itself in uh, state annihilation policies it's the political rhetoric of security groups are not targeted because uh, they're hated they're targeted because they're threatening or they're perceived to be threatening right there's a paranoia i talk a little about paranoia in the chapter on the Nazis, for example, um, these aren't objectively accurate perceptions. You know, but we need to get into the heads of perpetrators in order to understand, you know, why they're doing what they're doing. Now, that doesn't mean you accept at face value that 
their propaganda, right? But uh, I think if you do do enough reading, you can see that you know often they believe their propaganda, okay? And the 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 pervasive language of security uh, rather than hatred, and but although hatred often accompanies these these policies, right? Uh, without doubt, right? Um, leads one to conclude that we need to look much more carefully here about what causes uh, what causes mass violence against civilians. Now, you haven't asked me you know, where I got this concept of permanent security from, but you knew I would tell you anyway. And you know, it's not my term. It comes from uh, a Nazi war criminal you know, who was hanged after his uh, trial at Nuremberg by the, by the Americans, not by the International Military Tribunal. Because as your readers know and your listeners know, the American military conducted a series of trials against sort of lesser war criminals, uh, you know, not the not the Goebbels and the Goerings and so forth, but the you know Einsatzgruppen leaders and so forth uh, in 1947 and 1948 and 46 as well. And uh, one of them was a Einsatzgruppen leader called Otto Orlendorf, whose uh, whose um, Einsatzgruppe murdered 90,000 Jews. Uh, in East Central Europe and in, 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 the, in the Crimea area. And in his trial, he was asked, you know, why did you do this? And he said, well, you know, the, the, uh, the children, the women and children could grow up to become, to become partisans, you know, and, and, and our enemies. And the, you know, the, the, the prosecutor was shocked and, and challenged him. And, and Ollendorf says, you have to understand, we didn't just want regular security we wanted permanent security we you know we want a, a thousand year right and i thought a lot about it and uh his rhetoric of attacking uh and murdering jewish women and children reminded me very much of the rhetoric that you got on the western or the american frontier about nits make lice you have to kill baby lice in order to prevent them growing up and becoming you know pests insect pests uh and and that's what occurred so there was a there was a, re a rhetorical link here uh, which is more than just rhetoric. It's about it, 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 it's about the mentality of states that are engaged in violent expansion. Uh, they are not just dealing with threats today, but they're preempting future threats. This is radical temporal dimension to it, which is deeply utopian in a sinister sense of utopian, because you're you want to you want to think about, and this is where the paranoia comes in, right? You have, you're trying to predict who could be dangerous for us, and you eliminate them for beforehand. And that's that's what happened. That's the that was the Nazi attitude towards Jews, and it, and it's led to this confusion about the cause of of mass violence. Now, because Jews were not engaged in a violent insurgency against uh, the Nazis in Germany or you know, outside Germany, the the image that we have of the Holocaust is one I, I call you know non-political. You know, Jews were attacked solely for being Jews, uh, and you know that's what that's what's made its way into the convention. When in fact, if you if you look more closely, and I reconstruct this in detail in the chapter, uh, Jews were attacked because they were considered a, a, a dangerous threat. Now, one doesn't obviously lend any credibility to this, right? But it's important to understand perpetrator. Uh, perpetrator the perpetrator mentality and the paranoia that goes with it but in doing so you can place the nazi case on a spectrum 
of different intensities of paranoia with other cases rather than in a separate distinct category with you know non-political genocides you know the holocaust and then all other cases of mass violence against civilians which occur in the context of civil wars or occupations and so forth right uh, and this this deep conceptual confusion has infected you know our entire field because the the Holocaust has this incredible aura. You know, it's the, the crime of crimes. I mean, if genocide is the crime of crimes, the Holocaust is, you know, the next level up if that's something that people can make sense of. But it's relevant in the, the following way. The Holocaust is genocide's archetype or ideal type. Okay. So, and, and this now gets to your question about the political function of genocide. Um, I observed this again and again, and this is reconstructed in, in, in later chapters in the book. When people tried to argue that, you know, they say the American policy in, in Vietnam is genocidal, as Sartre and other leftists did in the late 60s and 70s, uh, liberals and conservatives who, who defended American policy, even if they agreed that it was excessive at times, you know, they, I mean, they were massacres, people could like at my lie and so forth, people acknowledge that. But they would say, well, fine, but this is, this is not like, doesn't resemble the Holocaust. You know? And that's, that slippage between genocide and Holocaust is consistent in the public debates about the legibility of genocide, you know, whether, whether you can categorize something as genocide. Are these victims like the Jews? No, they're not, because members of that group were engaged in, in a rebellion. And Jews weren't. They aren't being killed as such solely on the grounds of their identity. They're being killed because they are, or members of their group are, are um, dangerous rebels. Okay. Now, what's, what's so fatally disastrous about that kind of reasoning is that people accept a kind of a collective guilt legit, legitimation. Okay. So, uh, to make that clearer, okay, uh, people people will, will agree that what happened to uh, Jews is awful, but when it when it comes to other cases, and this is one of the debates that's been going on in Germany this summer, you know, which you alluded to this catechism debate, right? Goetz Ali said, well, you know, the the the, the intentionality of the Holocaust is unique because they killed Jews just for being Jews, right? Whereas in the case of Namibia, the the, the, the in German Southwest Africa before the First World War, where where the where German forces had had um, committed what many now regard as a genocide, he said that was that's different. That was Gegenwehr. I don't know if your listeners understand German, but it means it was a defensive act because there was an uprising by the Herero and the Nam, uh, these African peoples that were under German occupation, and so the the Germans were reacting to a to you know in a sense african aggression and uh yes it, they were excessive in doing so but the intentionality is different uh but it, it it you know i found this quite outlandish it's 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 a it's buying into the colonial view that uh, arrogated to germans the right to be in german southwest africa at all and to be governing exploiting the africans who who were who were on, under this interpretation the aggressors rather than the Germans being the aggressors by being there, 
But if you if you take an imperial view of history, you would then see that the German expansionism into Africa and the German expansionism into East Central Europe carried with it similar logics of partisan or colonial warfare, uh, which were carried out slightly different ways because the circumstances were different. Uh, I mean, the population densities, the capacities of a small German Schutztruppe in Southwest Africa compared to the Nazi war machine with hundreds of divisions, right? It's just obviously very different, right? But the paranoia about security is the same. And the, the, the attempt to, for once and for all solutions to annihilate an ethnic group that's considered dangerous is the same. Uh, driving the Herero and the Nama into the desert so that they, having defeated the uprising, then pushing the rest of the civilian population into the desert to kill them, uh, participate, it's, it's governed by the same logic of annihilating future threats as the Holocaust. And it's very difficult and shocking and for some people to, to get their heads around that because we've grown up with this, this uh, stark distinction between attacking a group solely on the grounds of identity and then contrasting that with attacking a group because members of it members of it were engaged in an insurgency right i think that's in many ways the analytical core of the book and i'm, I'm really glad we had the chance to discuss that i should perhaps mention to you that when i teach a bachelor course on debates around totalitarianism and students have to submit at the end of the the course their term papers Every year I get a number of papers where somebody tries to show that case X or Y was in fact genocide. And these are very well-meaning students, but they really want to then basically discredit the other side of the argument saying, why do they even question it? Here, it, here, here are the proofs that it's like mm -hmm. that. And why is there is such a controversy out there in the world? And that of course leads me then to my next question because you also talk quite a bit about what you call the diplomacy of genocide, right? And you already started discussing this uh, during your uh, first answer, but I wanted us to go back to that a bit because I think a large stake of the book is also the type of memory regime uh, we have uh, with our contemporary focus on cases of genocide, right? And so I wanted to ask you, how have actually states and lawyers and also various activists related to genocide claims uh, in recent decades. What are some of the key characteristics of this broad field of fighting for recognition on the one hand and then yeah. contesting the label on the other? You know, what have been some of the key effects in this sense and also especially some of the less salutary effects of victim sure. identification and in a sense what we might call the globalization of Holocaust remembrance? Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, once again, um, very, very important questions, um, which are you know, intricately related. Uh, and I hope I can answer, answer satisfactorily. So there are very, very many actors, very different actors who are operating in the space, which I call the diplomacy of genocide. You have state officials, uh, and of course, states themselves are complex amalgamations of different departments with different lobbies, you know, different ministries, you know, with different... Um, different agendas. Then you've got the media within a state. Then you've got peace activists within the state. Then you've got diaspora groups from both sides, if you like, uh, within a particular state, which are, you know, trying to get attention and their message across in the media. And then you have, you know, opposition politicians who are in touch with these 
um, diaspora groups or peace groups, especially if they're in their electorate, who then are trying to get the message across in, you know, in the press or in, in parliament with questions and so forth. So even within a national sphere or space, you have a very complex series of uh, interactions by actors with various agendas, right? And try transposing that to an international sphere, okay? Where, because these conflicts usually take place in another country, okay? Uh, so then there's, you know, this taking place at the, you know, at the level of the UN and, and, um, and, and, and newspapers which are read internationally like the London Times or the New York Times, Washington Post and so forth. So uh, the, the general pattern seems to be that the uh, representatives of the, of the victim group or the group that wants to you know, draw attention to its victim status, both in situ and in their diasporas, uh, will claim that genocide is taking place as, for example, Uyghur activists are today in relation to China, right? Uh, you will then get uh, certain uh, sympathetic members of a humanitarian lobby who will agree with them. Uh, this was particularly the case in the Darfur activism about 15 years ago. Uh, and in doing so, in, 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 in advocating for the genocide label, one observes consistently that Holocaust references are mobilized. You know, this is like the Jews in 1942 or what have you, right? Or uh, somewhat less directly related, but still uh, for the case of genocide, which is then indirectly related to the case of the Holocaust, you know, these victims are being attacked solely on the grounds of their identity uh, and nothing to do with the fact that there's actually a civil war going on, you know? And so there's an attempt to depoliticize the, the agency of the victims to make them resemble, if you like that, you know, the, the, the agentless Jews of that. I'm not saying Jews were agentless in the, in the second world war, but that's the image, right? Innocent victims of state terror uh, attacked just for, for being who they were. And that's a distortion usually of the empirical reality. Right? Uh, give you an empirical example. I mean, during the during the um, various Balkan wars of the early '90s, you know, the various phases of it, uh, when advocates for the Bosnians were seeking American intervention, the American Secretary of State said, and they were using the language of genocide. The Secretary of State said, "This doesn't look like genocide to me. I don't remember Jews having weapons like the Bosnians, you know, and militias and armed forces and so forth." Right? So this is, this is that slippage that takes place. And, and usually, usually at the expense of the victim group. Now, if the Holocaust is so distinctive or unique to use this theological language that uh, some people deploy, well, then it's impossible by definition for other cases to resemble it, okay? And yet, if the Holocaust is the gold standard of genocide or the, its archetype or its ideal type, as is consistently implied. It's not in the legal documents, of course, but as is consistently implied, it's the way discourse functions. Then it's virtually impossible for victim groups to be legible as genocide, you know, because their case doesn't resemble the Holocaust. Okay? And that's one of the main problems of genocide. Now, it wouldn't be such a problem if there wasn't the strict hierarchy, at least in the public imagination, 
of international crimes with genocide at the top. If genocide wasn't the crime of crimes, then it wouldn't matter. If, if crimes against humanity was a crime of crimes, then uh, and it's much easier to prove crimes against humanity. You don't need the special intent. You just, it, it's not applicable just to ethnic, racial, and religious groups, but to all civilians and so forth. Then we wouldn't be having this conversation. I wouldn't have had to be writing this book. But it's because the Holocaust is in the DNA of the genocide concept, and because it was, it, its definition was re-described in the Genocide Convention to remove, if you like, that um, the element that uh, that uh, Lumpkin put in to make it this coalition I talked about. Then, um, well, this accounts for the fact why there is this notion of genocide as the crime of crimes. Okay, so uh, it is remarkable. Uh, it is, this this next comment comes from my own experience as a teacher to see you know even students uh, who are say Tamils. I've had Sri Lankan Tamils come to me uh, at the university after I teach a genocide course and say. How, how do we get our suffering in Sri Lanka to be on, the par, on par with the Holocaust? How did the Jews do it? What's their secret? And, you know, as if it's a marketing campaign, right? <laughs> rather than, you know, rather than, you know, very different historical circumstances, okay? So um, it's hard to know what to say to the students. I said, well, take my class. And uh, we'll see see what you see what you're thinking at the end of it, right? But the point I'm making here is not to not to ridicule these uh, students whose families were suffering terribly in, in Sri Lanka, but to to point out the the enormous uh, symbolic attraction that a genocide um, a genocide allegation, you know, a plausible genocide allegation has for victim groups, and but in doing so they and this is, you know, the, uh, to reiterate this, they want, they try to portray their case in holocaustal terms as they're making the link in their own head. They're not necessarily always looking at the genocide convention. That's what the international lawyers do. They're much more, you know, concerned with the, the black letter law as they are, as lawyers would be, right? And they're just thinking, okay, does, can I prove these various elements in the facts that I see before me? Now I'm actually in a in a in a email, you know, group email um, with uh, you know many others who are involved in or interested in the Uyghur case, and it consists of academics and lawyers and advocates and so forth, social scientists, experts on 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 Xinjiang who are social scientists and historians and so forth, and it's just fascinating to see how the lawyers react to the allegation of genocide, which this tribunal has come out with recently. Uh, a, a, an informal tribunal, right? you know, not not the ICC, um, compared to the others. But the, the lawyers cleave to the law. They're, they're not interested in Holocaust analogies. It's irrelevant. But but in public consciousness, it is relevant. Okay, and so therefore, it's politically significant, and we need to talk about it. So you talked about re regimes of memory, Farrakh, in your question. Well, in a regime of memory in which um, the Holocaust is considered unique and yet also an archetype for a generic crime, we, we have problems. We have problems of recognition for, for crimes that can't be made to resemble the Holocaust. 
and that includes quite a lot of civilian destruction, which is you know what I'm what I'm concerned about. Now, when I when I teach a class on genocide, as I will next semester, I ask students, what's the largest mass casualty event of civilians in the 20th century? And is it categorized as genocide? And it's not. It, I mean, people talk about 45 million deaths in the in the uh, Great Leap Forward in China. Uh, genocide is not the right category legally. And it's one reason it's not in a genocide class, right? But what good is a genocide concept if it excludes that? If it excludes the flattening of North Korea in which 2 million civilians died? If it excludes a you know, nuclear uh, atomic bombing of civilians, even if they're enemy civilians, right? I mean, I thought that the principle of distinction uh, that the Geneva Conventions uh, or the International Committee of the Red Cross guards is the the hallmark of civilized warfare, right? If there's such a thing, right? Uh, which I doubt, but um, that you distinguish between combatants and non-combatants, you know, if that's if that's our, our moral precept, then there be, then there are a lot of exceptions to it. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and, you know, one of the arguments of the book is that it's deliberate and that by fetishizing genocide as the crime of crimes, we, we posit the language of transgressions so high, much higher than before Lemkin invented the concept of genocide. And therefore, we, we accept as not so shocking all the stuff that's beneath the level of genocide. When I wrote my brief recommendation of your book in Hungarian that, that I mentioned to you slightly earlier, I tried to distill it into seven major agendas, right? I tried to say that this is a book that, unlike many other books, this really has quite a wide range of topics that it covers, and it really analyzes things on various levels, and you really need to think about how they are connected. And now we have been talking about memory regimes and the diplomacy of, of genocide. But in the book, you also talk about scholarship more directly, the field of comparative uh, genocide studies. You look at the rise and institutionalization of this as an academic field, and you assert, yeah. and I'm, I'm quoting you, that after briefly parting company in the 1970s and 1980s, when the humanitarian conscious challenged permanent security in all its modes, they again became one and the same entity as they had mm. been for much of the previous 500 years, end of quote. And so that much of the, the field of comparative genocide studies, in fact, started to serve as an academic handmaid, and you may call it of, of American, also global imperial type of ambitions, right? This is yeah. what, you're, what you're getting at you know, when, when you discuss uh, more recent decades. So I was wondering whether you could tell us a bit more about in what ways has the academic endeavor served such ambitions and more generally what do we know today about the connections between liberal internationalism and the violence entailed sure. in attempts to permanently pacify the globe i should perhaps mention that uh, of course you draw a very a strong distinction between liberal and illiberal forms of permanent security right in in the book yeah. you do say that both belong under the same category but that they are distinct at the same time and and yeah. do you perhaps see a new kind of civilizing mission developing around genocide prevention to push the argument mm. further that you know might be in fact fostered by this prevalent contemporary mode of the politics of pity. Sure. sure, sure. So once again, there's a lot there. The it's important for your readers and listeners to understand what I mean by 
a moment in the 70s and 80s when permanent security was being was identified as a problem and criticized. Although no one used the language of permanent security, there were uh, a significant number of legal and other academics in the US and elsewhere who, in, who were radicalized by or mobilized by opposition to the Vietnam War, including many liberals, uh, not just leftists, and who wrote significant works and set up you know, research centers and so forth, and got a hearing in public uh, from the late 60s until the early 80s, and, and challenged the, the American security state, and, uh, and particularly a rhetoric about use of nuclear weapons. You know, there was an important peace movement in the 1980s, and some of the older viewers will remember the, the um, standoff between the Soviets and the Americans and the deployment of Pershing missiles in Germany and you know, to, 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 to challenge the Russian stationing of SS-20s and so forth. You know, and this led to a, you know, a very uh, large peace movement in Germany in particular because it was going to be the firestorm, where the firestorm would have taken place. Now, um, you know, I guess it's you could you could date this you know, when Reagan becomes uh, president in the U.S. You know, there's a change in the '80s, and uh, pro, you know, pro-American, um, you know, American interference or intervention in in the outside world. When you think of the support of uh, right-wing dictatorships in the Latin America and so forth, you know, becomes to the fore, and you know, the 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 the, the chagrined um, restraint of the post-Vietnam decade, you know, from the seventies, quickly was for you know came to an end. Okay, now genocide studies develops in this period as well. I mean, it's just a handful of scholars in the eighties, frankly, right? But a couple of important books were written, uh, which served as since the Bible, the early Bibles for this um, group of scholars uh, who grew in the nineteen nineties. In, into a sort of more international network, but it was really fo focused on in North America, mainly by Jewish and Armenian scholars uh, who were, you know, interested in, you know, often for, fa for family reasons uh, in the um, in genocide, uh, but uh, but were less interested in the uniqueness of the Holocaust, although they did believe in it, um, because they were interested in 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 comparison and in other cases. And, you know, which I think is admirable. Uh, it's one reason I became involved in this field uh, because I was very interested in the in, in advocating for um, Indigenous Australians, or you know, writing at least writing about it. Okay, uh, and and being a useful you know a useful uh, scholarly ally. Now, uh, genocide studies uh, becomes more of a field. Uh, throughout the 1990s when, of course, there's something to write about in real time, which is obviously the Rwanda genocide and then the, the, the situation in the former Yugoslavia. And then you had this humanitarian interventionist moment in Kosovo in 1999. And Samantha Power writes her book on, on, um, uh, on uh, a problem uh, from hell America and humanitarian intervention, which is really about sins of omission, you know, where America should have intervened but didn't. Right? I think that came out in 2001 and made a big impact and uh, became a Bible for many, many members of the uh, genocide studies community in the US. I went to my first genocide studies conference in the US as a postgraduate in 1999, and I remember the, the atmosphere quite well. 
I also remember the, the, the deep criticism that Mark Levine, a, a very important British scholar, received for challenging the, the clear assumption at that conference that the, the US should be the vehicle for preventing genocide around the world. You know, Mark came out of the history of uh, military, of war studies, you know, peace movement, you know, anti-war studies, but also you know, environmental activism and, uh, and, and di international diplomatic history and was deeply suspicious of all empires <laughs> and, and the state generally. Okay. And uh, he was rebuked for, for daring to challenge, if you like, the Samantha Power style consensus. Uh, which was which had developed in genocide studies in the 1990s, and you know the, that community was thrilled by the NATO bombing of Serbia, Serbian forces uh, regarding Kosovo in 1999. Right? Now they, you know, and many of them were were also, you know, not against the war on terror, and uh, were were you know were writing. Uh, you know, may have been uneasy, uh, uh, ill at ease about certain aspects of it, right? But, you know, divided the world in a very cold, post-Cold War way between the, the, the you know, non-Western states and entities which were oppressing their minorities and um, Western powers, especially the US, which would rescue them. So there was a sort of white rescue fantasy built into, into a lot of this activism. Now, in saying that, I, uh, I don't mean to disparage the efforts of, uh, uh, of uh, you know, colleagues of mine who are you know, extremely clever and sincere and uh, who work on you know, the responsibility protect doctrine, you know, which doesn't necessarily involve military intervention. There are you know, a whole range of policy levers available to the international community to put pressure on states which are oppressing their minorities or are conquering another state and then doing the same right and obviously i deplore that okay and uh if if there's if if there are ways of doing that if there are ways of uh, applying pressure to these states then uh you know that should be investigated right however the, the there's uh uh the asymmetries of this of the gaze uh around this uh are troubling for many of us and we formed our own our own genocide studies association called the International Network of Genocide Scholars, which is the one that sponsors the journal that I edit, the Journal of Genocide Research, right? which is the oldest journal in the field. So, uh, you know, what, what I and others observed is that, and this is where the diplomacy of genocide comes in, Barry, is that, you know, it, it, the genocide studies community would mobilize the language of, you know, genocide, uh, to condemn America's geopolitical enemies, but it didn't have much to say about uh, the crimes of America's geopolitical allies. Now, whether genocide is the right concept sometimes, it, but they were, there was just no interest in it at all. And uh, I, I found that troubling. And, uh, and, and one of the reasons I think we need to, to come up with a new concept for, uh, to explain why states uh, engage in in the oppression and destruction of civilians is in order to get beyond this hierarchy and uh, the, the fetishization of certain types of civilian destruction over others. And to, and to observe that there aren't, goody, there aren't sort of goodies and baddies in international relations, like everyone's a kind of potential baddie. 
if if any if anyone has clean hands it's the the um the in the human rights ngos like their reports um uh, like human rights watch for example their reports need to be read uh, with great seriousness they're, they're they're these are very serious uh, outfits and uh uh for those that are in you know looking to be activists i would i would um direct them in that to those kind of organizations rather than wanting to become diplomats where you're inevitably going to have to make terrible compromises that's fascinating. And I also think that, you know, much of what has been going on this year, and there has been a lot of polemic, some of which uh, has been really rather uh, overdone, if you wish. It also oh, yeah. has to do with the globalization uh, of discussions. I think somebody like you, who happens to have grown up uh, in Australia, sees, I believe, also the history of the West, uh, Western empires and imperial violence in a slightly different way. And you know, when that gets to be connected to discussions in Germany, for instance, which have been so often praised around the world, I think yeah. one can also see what are the elements that are missing uh, in those discussions and what are actually some of the key assumptions that might be mistaken also when it comes to the history uh, of the West uh, and, and, and so on, right? So I think that's extremely useful, but as, uh, and we have really been discussing a lot of uh, large and very important questions. And I would like to ask you a final one, because again, you, you do say in the book that your hope is to promote civilian protection by yeah. a re-evaluation of international law and our dominant memory regimes. And in this spirit, you also plead for the outlawing of this deeply sinister ambition of permanent security. So as a final yeah. question, let us perhaps talk a bit about also positive developments you have experienced uh, in recent decades and, and in more recent years. Uh, would you say that there is a growing understanding of the strategic logics underlying mass violence and a stronger focus today on outcomes rather than perpetrator intentions as compared to say the 1990s? And more specifically, how do you view the rise of this new atrocity paradigm, which includes references to cases of genocide, crimes against humanity, and war crimes all at the right. same time? Is it something that you find promising or perhaps not? Right. Well, that's a, it's a good place to start with where you ended, right? Why, why is there this new concept of atrocity crimes, which is developed uh, by various scholars like David Sheffer and others um, over the last 10 or 20 years? And it's been adopted by the UN Secretariat, uh, which which came out with a with a statement about this, and I quoted in the book somewhere, uh, which bundles genocide, crimes against humanity, war, and war crimes, and ethnic cleansing, which doesn't actually have a legal uh, any legal category or standing, but um, has has rhetorically been bundled into the, this new concept of um, atrocity, mass atrocity crimes. Why is that? Well, it's because genocide is so difficult to prove. Genocide is, among other things, right? Genocide is so difficult to prove that the lawyers usually re recur to or resort to crimes against humanity and especially war crimes. Uh, and if you look at most of the most of the successful indictments, it will be for those two, okay, uh, which are bad enough. Okay, my, my view is that you know if we didn't have this hierarchy, this would be uh, this would be considered a great victory, but you know the victim groups still want genocide, and uh, it's the it's the these are the indictments and prosecutions that get the attention. 
Okay, it has this sort of charismatic aura, this negative charismatic aura that the others didn't want. But the the lawyers, you know, go for what they can get through the courts, uh, which is you know crimes against humanity and and war crimes. Of course, ethnic cleansing is already included in crimes against humanity because transfer of civilians is 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 part of a crime against humanity, and it's one of its elements, or you know, it's a possibility. In any event, the that's I see that as a, uh, a in a sense, a necessary development that uh, at the United Nations level, one that was forced upon them by the impossibility of this architecture that they've inherited from the immediate aftermath of the Second World War. I mean, I mean, genocide and crimes against humanity overlap in so many aspects. Uh, and, you know, it's not by design, it's in a sense by the by, by, you know, this accident that we got genocide or virtual accident after the Second World War. Uh, it, you know, outside uh, in the in the in the community people think that well this is a beautifully designed integrated architecture that the uh, international community has at its disposal but it's no it's, it's highly incoherent in some ways as i see it though some lawyer friends maybe may disagree in any event the cr crimes against humanity is much more an outcomes based crime you don't need to prove this intent to destroy in whole or in part as such the, it's a crime of strict liability, strict liability. The fact that a military officer committed or undertook this policy of, say, of or practice of deporting civilians and so forth is an, all that needs to be proved. You don't need. It doesn't need to be. It doesn't. You just need the actus reus. You don't need a mens rea, so an intention, which uh, you know, which which you know, which is that that was meant to destroy the group in some kind of metaphysical way. You know. Uh, erase them from the earth and so forth. So uh, in practice, there is this outcomes approach, right? But in, in the public mind, the, the image of the sinister, malevolent leader that wants to annihilate a group, you know, like in the Holocaust, is still very central. So there, I think there, there is a very uneven situation in, 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 in global affairs. And it's, and it's hard to generalize. I mean, in a sense, you've got divergent or contrapuntal trends. And when I look at the activism around the Uyghur case, I see the same patterns that I've studied in the, in the 60s and 70s in relation to the Biafra case in Nigeria and the, the East Pakistan case, which is now Bangladesh in 1971, where uh, victim groups were, were constantly pressing for genocide recognition. And there was an intense resistance to that which is predictable, obviously, by the perpetrator states. And then the mobilization of Holocaust imagery by all sides to either, you know, make an analogy that sticks or to say, no, the analogy doesn't work, right? So I, I see a persistence of that, of, that, uh, of that discourse, of that structure of discourse today. So I'm somewhat pessimistic, and, and that's why I think we need to, to move away from uh, this idea of a crime of crimes and move to a notion where we problematize the security claims of states. So, for example, the, the Chinese state says, we're not attacking uh, Uyghurs as such. Uh, we're, we're putting them in education camps in Xinjiang because we want to make sure that the, that the separatist tendencies, uh, you know, secessionist tendencies of uh, the Uyghur population uh, liquidated, 
It's not genocide. This is a legitimate security operation. Now, if they can get away with that, then, and, and they will geopolitically, because no one is going to prevent Chinese doing what they want. Okay. This is, this is what great powers can do. Okay. But, you know, they still want to, they're still very sensitive about their image in global affairs. Right. And we'll be, we'll be running a security argument and, and it's against terrorism. And it's very similar to the, to the global war and terror arguments that, that Western powers run. You know, they, they've set themselves a bit of a trap there by, by harping on terrorism as a legitimation, a legitimator for, you know, foreign policy, right? Obviously terrorist, terrorist attacks were problem states need to do, need to do something about it, but, but going into continuous permanent warfare <laughs> uh, and with flying missiles in other parts of the world may not be the right answer. Okay. Now the, if you problematize security rhetoric by a state, rather than trying to engage in nitpicking about whether it's genocide or not, then you can have a conversation, not about whether it's genocide or not. Uh, and of course, if it's not, then everything is you know, implicitly okay, right? As in, in global affairs, because it doesn't shock the conscience of mankind, it's beneath that level. Then you can have a conversation about whether the security measures are legitimate or not, whether they rise to the level of permanent security. And here's a concrete way of thinking about it, Ferry. The Chinese state, when dealing with the secessionist uh, violence that did occur some time ago by Uyghurs, you know, not many, but some, right? They could have arrested the perpetrators and put them on trial, okay? That would have been a, a legitimate legal security measure. Instead, they, have, they are engaging in a permanent security fantasy which is all too true, unfortunately, which is, you know, incarcerating a large proportion of its population, the, uh, the Uyghur population in Xinjiang, for a kind of permanent re-education program, uh, and also affecting the birth rate, apparently, to, you know, to diminish the population, increase the Han population, in order to prevent future secessionist possibilities. And that's permanent security, because it's about preemption. It's about preventing security threats in the future. And doing so necessarily entails massive human rights violations. So you can see you can criminalize that without having to get caught up on Holocaust analogies or whether it's genocide or not. The mere fact that you can identify this utopian future-oriented dimension to the policy, which is clearly discernible in, in Chinese government statements and in and it's apparent in the policies outcome you know these this carceral complex in which uh, what a million uyghurs have been uh have been locked up is is apparent to all and it and is in my view has a criminal dimension although not a formal one because it's not not international law right but rhetorically it it should shock our, it does clearly shock many people's consciences, right? But we don't have the vocabulary to talk about why. Instead, we're getting sidetracked into uh, labels of genocide or not. And for the Chinese, if they can, if they can say, no, it's not genocide, then they've won the war. Now, how do we know that states organize or operate like this? When the United Nations Special investigation into the Darfur case in Sudan, I think it's 2007, the report came out, 
concluded that the that genocide was not taking place but crimes against humanity plus the crime of persecution the there were audible sighs of relief in Khartoum and also many African Union states where they said so nothing to see here it's just crimes against humanity <laughs> you know now that's an appalling situation uh, but that's that's the way our international system is structured at least in in you know and, and also our own emotional affect our affects are structured that way so the book is also interested in our why we find certain things shocking and not other things shocking you know why don't we find a permanent drone warfare against uh, non-white civilians in which you know tens of thousands of them are killed over and if not more over a 10 20 year period why don't we shocked by that i mean i know there are moments when people are upset when the new york times recently exposed the fact that the american reprisal missile in afghanistan killed 10 people seven of them children apparently and you know one family but it disappears off the page two or three days later right because it's not genocide it's a low it's low intensity violence over a long period of time i mean this is what i call liberal permanent security right genocide is not the right word there we need to come up with a vocabulary that criminalizes that kind of state policy and says this is not okay this is a this is a utopian aspiration to make the world safe for uh for you know if you like western powers forever by killing lots of um, non-westerners preemptively and uh, a lot of attendant civilians you know and uh, and and that's okay they think and we we shrug our shoulders and we say well it's just one of those things it, well my view is not one of those things it, it shouldn't be seen as one of those things we should be reassessing our secure global security policies Thank you so much for that. I think that answer demonstrates also the immense relevance of this argument in the current moment. Thank you so much for being on the show, Dirk Moses, and uh, answering all these critical questions uh, so substantially. Uh, thanks very much, Frank. Uh, you know, your, your questions were incredibly uh, probing and perceptive, and you know, I, I, I feel you've, you, uh, you've read and understood the, better, the book better than most people, and, and, and even myself, perhaps. You know, well, you, that's you, too much to say, I think, but, but <laughs> th th thank you so much for, for that, that very kind uh, comment of yours. We have been discussing the problems of genocide, permanent security, and the language of transgression, which is the major new monograph by Dirk Moses. It's certainly among the most ambitious, thoughtful, and also challenging uh, monographs to be published uh, in 2021. It's been a great pleasure for me to have the chance to discuss it with the author uh, in such great detail and so substantially. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Until the next time. Thank you. Bye. Okay.